Would you please open up your Bibles to the book of Exodus, chapter 32? As you're finding your way to chapter 32, let me begin in prayer. Father in heaven, I'm so grateful for this time, for this place, for these loving people. And for the opportunity to come and give attention to your word. Your word that endures forever. We believe it, Lord, that the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our Lord stands forever. So now, God, even though we look back to things that happened some 3,500 years ago, we believe you speak it now afresh and anew to our hearts. Teach us through your word in Jesus' name. Amen. As we come to Exodus chapter 32... We come to this time when Israel has been down at the foot of Mount Sinai as Moses and Joshua, his assistant, have been up near the summit of Mount Sinai. And Moses has been gone for 40 continuous days. And in those days, God has instructed him not giving more laws for Israel to obey, but rather instead God teaching them about the worship that he wanted to institute among the people of Israel, most specifically the tabernacle and the altar and the temple service. Well, all that time, while Moses was up at the summit of Mount Sinai, it's not like the people down at the foot in the camp of Israel were doing nothing. Matter of fact, they were doing bad things. And this is what we get to in Exodus chapter 32, verse 1. Now, when the people saw that Moses delayed coming down from the mountain, the people gathered together to Aaron and said to him, come, make us gods that shall go before us. For as this Moses, the man who has brought us up out of the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. Now, I don't mean to spoil the story here, give a little spoiler, but this isn't going to end well. In just a few verses, we're going to see that Israel makes a grotesque representation of the living God. Not that the object itself was grotesque, as I'll discuss in a few minutes, but any false representation of the true and living God is in its own way grotesque. But I want you to see that right here in verse 1, there are several markers that led them to this terrible idolatry that they committed. The first thing that led them to this idolatry was that they were tired of the delay. Look at it right there in verse 1. Moses delayed coming down from the mountain. Because of the delay, the people said, well, where's Moses? I don't know. This has taken a long time. Maybe they thought Moses would just be up on Sinai a few days. Maybe they thought it might be a week. It ended up being 40 days. I don't know if 40 days sounds like a long time or a short time to you, but often if you're waiting for something to happen, 40 days seems like a long time. And they waited and they waited and they waited and they got tired of waiting. The delay and their response to the delay led them into idolatry. But look at the next thing. Verse 1 also says that the people gathered together to Aaron and said to him, this was a swelling of popular opinion popular opinion said, we got to do something about this. Make us gods, Moses. I'm a strong believer in democracy, but it's not always right. 
Sometimes the people can be terribly wrong about things. 51% or even more. And even though there was a groundswell of pop... Don't read anything into that. Shame on you for trying to read something into that. It's not in my notes or anything. It was purely spontaneous. No, but listen, just because there's a popular support for something doesn't make it right. No, I agree with, I don't know if it was Winston Churchill or somebody else. They said, democracy is the worst form of government ever invented, except for all the others. So, uh, look, I'm pro-democracy, but we just got to admit, the voice of the people is not always the voice of God. And just because there was a popular opinion that said, make us gods, it shouldn't have happened. So delay, democracy, look at the third one here in verse 1. It says, come make us gods that shall go before us. The people had a destination in mind. The destination was the promised land. And they felt that maybe if they had something more tangible, something you could actually put your eyes upon, because let's face it, it was a challenge to serve Yahweh, the God of Israel, in a pagan world. Because in a pagan world, Baal had a statue representing him. All the gods of Egypt had statues or images representing them. All the gods of the pagans could be represented in a tangible, physical way. But when you got down to the worship of Yahweh, what did you have? Nothing. Oh, you worship the invisible God? How's that working out for you? And again, this was a pressure upon the Israelites. Maybe they felt that a God more like the other nations could lead them into the promised land and their destiny, their destination was more secure with another God. And then finally, if you look at it there, verse 4 says, we do not know what has become of him. The people of Israel, they looked up on the top of Mount Sinai and they saw that it burned with fire, that it smoked like a furnace. And they said, Moses is up there. Who knows if he's even alive? Maybe he's burned dead. We've waited for him one week, two weeks, three weeks, up now to 30 days or whatever. Forget this. Doubt about knowing whether or not Moses was alive. It led them to say, Let's pursue idols. Now, I find this interesting. What do we have here? We have delay. We have democracy. We have destiny. We have doubt. And those four things led Israel into idolatry. Now, can I just say, you are going to be confronted with each one of those four things. You're going to have delays in your life that you don't know what to do with. And how many people, maybe you yourself, you've been led into some kind of idolatry because you just didn't feel like waiting anymore. Or you've been led into some idolatry because everybody else is doing it. The voice of the people tells you to do it. Or you've been led off into some kind of idolatry because you thought, well, that's where my future is. That's my destiny. Or finally, you've been led off into some kind of idolatry because of doubt. You're going to face those things. They don't have to drive you to idolatry. But if you allow them, they will. So what happened next? Verse 2. And Aaron said to them, Break off the golden earrings which are in the ears of your wives, your sons, and your daughters, and bring them to me. So all the people broke off the golden earrings which were in their ears and brought them to Aaron. And he received the gold from their hand. And he fashioned it with an engraving tool. And he made a gold molded calf. 
And they said, this is your God, O Israel, that brought you out of the land of Egypt. I'm so fascinated by this and how it shows that the devil has never had an original idea ever in his head. All he can do is entice people to do things in perverted imitation of what God has commanded, what God has already done. So up on the mountain, and you'll find this in Exodus chapter 25, up on the mountain, God tells Moses, receive an offering for the making of the tabernacle. So what does Satan whisper into the ear of Aaron and the people of Israel? Receive an offering for the making of a golden calf. God says to Moses up on Mount Sinai, construct a place of worship and a system of worship. God's tabernacle patterned after the heavenly reality. What does Satan whisper into the ears of Aaron and the people down in the camp below? He simply says, make an idol and worship it as if it were God. You see the imitative nature of Satan. He takes something that God has done or that God has commanded it. He twists it. He perverts it, and then he promotes it. So Aaron made this calf. He fashioned it with an engraving tool. He made it according to his own workmanship. And then verse 4 says, Then they said, This is your God, O Israel, that brought you out of the land of Egypt. How sickening is that? The Lord God of Israel, glorious in power, led them out of Egypt, led them across the Red Sea, provided for them in the wilderness. They spoke these words with bellies full of manna that no golden calf gave them, but the Lord God gave them. And yet they went off into this idolatry. Now make no mistake about it. The initial impulse for this came from the people. It was sort of a democratic movement, if I could use that phrase. It was the will of the people to make this idol. But look at Aaron in this. Aaron does not get off the hook. Oh, I don't think he was the source of this idolatry. The source was the people. But Aaron shows himself to be a disgrace as a spiritual leader. Do you know what a spiritual leader would have done on this occasion? A spiritual leader would have stood up and he would have said, no, this is idolatry. No, even though you want this, oh, Israel, it will not happen. No, we cannot represent the Lord God that brought us out of Egypt with something like a golden calf. Even though you might say that a young bull is noble, it's strong, it's filled with sacrifice and service. No, we're not going to represent the Lord with any graven image. He has commanded us not to. We will not do this. Instead of saying that, as a true spiritual leader would have done, Aaron gave in to the crowd. By the way, I think that that's one of the characteristics. By no means would I say it's the only characteristics of a true spiritual leader. A true spiritual leader does not have the mentality, I'll just give the people what they want. You tell me what you want, and I'll give it to you. You tell me the kind of sermons you want, and that's what I'll give back. Good heavens, no. Now, I will say this. A true spiritual leader is in touch with the people. He loves the people. He cares for them. He knows what they're going through. But no, no, no. His ministry is dictated by the glory of the Lord, not by the will of the people. And so, this is your God that brought you out of the land of Egypt. No. How could they say such a thing? 
How could they say this with the voice of God speaking from heaven still echoing in their ears some 30, 20, 30 days before whatever it was? Because Moses didn't come down until the 40th day. They started construction on this sometime before. And if it could get worse, it does, starting at verse 5. So when Aaron saw it, he built an altar before it. And Aaron made a proclamation and said, Tomorrow is a feast to the Lord. Then they rose early on the next day, offered burnt offerings and brought peace offerings. And the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. Aaron saw how enthusiastically his golden calf was embraced. They thought, I'm quite the artist. They like my sculpture. Let's do this. He said, let's build an altar before it. Friends, this is going from bad to worse to worser. Not only did they make this golden calf, this representation, not only did they say, this is the Lord, and commit that terrible sin of pretending to worship the true God, but doing it in a false way, but then they built an altar so that they could make blood sacrifices before this pagan idol. It's a terrible thing for them to do. But it's so characteristic of idolatry. Friends, I don't know about you, but maybe you're sort of breathing a sigh of relief or maybe think, well, this is a pretty good Bible study here. And you're, you're sort of, you know, comforting yourself with the fact that you do not have a golden calf at home that you sacrifice animals to. By the way, if you do, stop it now. <laughs> Just stop it. I think the text is clear enough. But you and I, we both know, do we not? The problem of idolatry did not end in Exodus chapter 32. Idolatry is something that's so characteristic of our fallen human nature that every one of us has to deal with this great challenge of idolatry. And so I hope you do not take offense to this this morning, but I'm going to speak to you very frankly, you being either idol worshipers or potential idol worshipers, because that's myself. And we need to hear this about this. You say, well, how do I, how would I know? Do I worship an idol? I'll tell you one way you would know is you will make sacrifices for your idol. What do you worship? I don't know. They gave a lot of gold to make this uh, golden calf. They got up early. Verse six says they rose early on the next day. They served their idol with energy and expense and enthusiasm. You will make sacrifices for your idol. What's the idol in your life, if you should have one? I don't know. Maybe if we looked at your credit card statement, we'd know what your idol is. Maybe we looked at what you spend your time with. Maybe we looked at what you're willing to get up early in the morning for. That might demonstrate what your idol is. Now look, whenever we talk about idolatry, it's very difficult. Because it is possible to have things with a right heart in your mind, and it's not an idol. It's just something that's in your life, and it's not an idol. As a matter of fact, do you understand that two people can do very similar actions, and for one person, it's just a wonderful thing that they enjoy unto the Lord, but for the person right next to them, it's an idol in their life. This is why I am so 
reliant upon the work of the Holy Spirit in your heart. I wonder if you know, I wonder if you appreciate it, how much I rely on the power of the Holy Spirit, not just to help me. You know, that's one way that preachers like to pray. Oh, Holy Spirit, help me to preach this sermon. That's great. But there's an entire another way that the Holy Spirit works through the preaching of the word, not directly in and through the preacher, but directly in the mind and the heart of the hearer. And is that thing in your life that you give yourself to, that you give time, money, energy? Is it an idol? I don't know. Matter of fact, if you or I to sit down and have a frank conversation about it over a cup of coffee, you might persuade me that it's not an idol, but maybe God knows that it is. That's why I trust that you'll listen to the voice of the Holy Spirit. And if he speaks to your heart this morning or later as he brings remembrance on your heart, no, this is idolatry. You must deal with it as much. that You'll just listen to the voice of the Holy Spirit. Here's something else to notice. Verse 6 says that the people brought, burnt, or brought peace offerings and the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. And you think, well, great. They got together around the golden calf and had a Scrabble tournament or something like that. They were playing. What were they doing? Look, are, are you aware that sometimes the Bible speaks in a, um, in a very dignified way about undignified conduct. It uses soft or euphemistic words. That's exactly what's going on right here. There's no doubt, and I, look, I could dig into the original Hebrew with you if you want. Not that I know it, but I can read the guys who do know it. This, this rising up to play, they rose up to play, it, it clearly speaks of sexual immorality. So this is what they did. They got together around the gold calf. They had a great big feast. They got drunk, and they were sexually immoral. That's what they did around the golden calf. We we could call this, and I don't know if there's a better term, but I'll just use a term that kind of came to my mind. We would call this the party life, and they loved it. I don't think the party life ended back in Exodus chapter 32. It's still among us today, is it not? And this is what you know. You know as well that many people forsake God or live double lives because of the attraction to the party life. Now, let me say this about the party life. Um, God is not against a party. He's not. Matter of fact, did you know he commanded it in ancient Israel? In ancient Israel, he commanded them three times a year to have great big feasts. And that's what a party is. It's a great big feast. That's how it would be described in the Old Testament. And I'll tell you what's more. What's more is that when God wanted to describe what the greatness of his kingdom was like, both now and ultimately in heaven, he used a wedding feast to describe it. And a wedding feast, what was it in the Hebraic mind? It was nothing less than the greatest party you ever had in your life. This was the greatest party ever. And God said, this is what my kingdom's like. Nobody should have this bizarre, twisted idea that God is up in heaven, looking down upon earth, trying to see if anybody's having a good time. And if they are, you've got to smash that out. Not at all. God loves when people get together and have a good time. I think that God wishes there was more laughter in this world than the sadness that is so often present. No, God is not against a party. 
God is not against us. But look at the party that they had here in Exodus chapter 32. I'm going to say that it's marked by two things that corrupt parties today. The party life is corrupted by intoxication and immorality. I don't know, maybe it's corrupted by other things as well, but let's just say those two things, intoxication and immorality. And if you can't have your party without intoxication, what does that say? I mean, honestly, now, just take an objective look at it. Isn't that twisted? I can't have a good time without being intoxicated. I can't have a good time without immorality on some level around me. It's just, there's just something wrong with that. And God wants to deliver you from that. God wants to deliver you from that twisted idea of a party that says, I can't have fun without uh, intoxication and immorality going on around me. God wants you to have that good time, but cleansed of those things. So that's the first aspect. I, I will say that the party life often leads people into gross sin and lots of trouble. I thought about it first service. I'll say it again, even though it's a little bit later in the morning. I imagine there, there could be more than one person among us. You're hungover this morning. You're hungover because, well, you're, you're kind of sharing time. You're here at church. But the, the, the party life has its draw, has its attraction to you. But can, can I exhort you? God wants you to live and enjoy life. But why not free from intoxication and immorality. The second thing that hits us, how could they do this? How could they do this with bellies full of manna? How could they do this in light of all that God had done for them? We get a little outraged, don't we? It's ungrateful. It's not right. It's disobedience. It's an offense in the sight of God. And then I stop myself somewhere along the list because I realize, how can I perform my idolatry? The, the, the same things that made Israel's idolatry so foolish and so offensive, it applies just as much to our idolatry today. Let's move on now to verse 7. And the Lord said to Moses, all right, but if you're filming this, the camera shifts. The scene shifts. No longer are you down at the cab of Israel where, you know, you got to film it from a distance because you got to be discreet. You don't want it to get a, a bad rating at the, the movie theater. And so you, you're just from a distance. And then, and then the camera pans up back up to Moses. He's up there on Mount Sinai. Forty days of the most blessed fellowship with God. Forty days he's been in communion with the Lord. It's like, oh, Lord, this is so sweet. And then you get to verse 7 and what? I'll tell you what. The retreat's over at verse 7. And the Lord said to Moses, go get down for your people whom you have brought out of the land of Egypt have corrupted themselves. Did you notice that? Who, whose people were they? This is great. It's just like when the kids act up. You know, you say to your wife, your son is really doing something. It, going on now. They have turned aside quickly out of the way which I commanded them. They've made themselves a molded calf and worshipped it and sacrificed it and said, this is your God, O Israel, that brought you out of the land of Egypt. Now notice this. For your people whom you brought out of the land of Egypt, God called Israel your people to Moses. It's as if he's saying this, I disown them. Moses, I can't do anything more with them. 
Look at all that I've done with them. And this is what they this is how they repay me. Moses, now they're your people. I wash my hands of them. They've turned aside so quickly. It'll make your head spin. And then I love what he said to him in verse eight. He says they've made themselves a molded calf and worshiped it and sacrificed to it. And then later on in verse nine, or excuse me, verse eight, God quotes the exact words. He said, do you understand? God knew exactly what was going on in the camp below. There was no mystery to him. He saw the whole thing. This is what Israel's thinking. Moses isn't around. God's not around. God's way up there on Sinai somewhere. Let's do our thing here. But God wanted them to know, no, I'm here. I see it. I can tell you everything that's going on. It is a concept that's so basic. It's humiliating how often we forget it, that God sees everything we do. You think, you think, well, if I go out of town, God doesn't see me. Really now? <laughs> then why do you do things out of town that you'd never do at home? Um, if it's nighttime, God doesn't see me. Well, then why do you do things at night that you'd never do in daylight? If I'm anonymous, God... You see how foolish it is? God saw everything that Israel did, and he even quoted their words back to Moses. He knew. He sees. Can I just linger on this point just for a sentence or two? If you are locked into idolatry this morning, and if you are, the Holy Spirit of God can tell you that. I don't know. Maybe I can. Maybe I can't. But the Holy Spirit of God can tell you. God sees it, and still he loves you. He's wooing you back to himself. He's trying to persuade you right here, right now, to leave your idols aside and to turn your heart towards him. Verse 9. And the Lord said to Moses, I've seen this people, and indeed it is a stiff-necked people. Now, therefore, leave me alone, that my wrath may burn hot against them, and that I may consume them, and I'll make of you a great nation. Do you understand carefully what God said in verses 9 and 10? God says, I've seen this people. They're stiff-necked. It's like they're rebellious animals. It's that donkey that won't cooperate, that ox that won't plow. They're just stiff-necked. They won't do the job. And God says, verse 10, let me alone that my wrath may burn hot against them. Moses, here's what I'm asking you to do. Don't do anything. I'll bring my wrath against them. Leave this to me, Moses. Now, do you understand, Moses had every opportunity to put the hands in the pockets of whatever kind of robe he was wearing and just say, okay, I'm done with it. Fine, God, you do whatever you want to do. After all, you're God, I'm not. Just do whatever you want to do. That's all God asked him. Moses, do nothing. Let my wrath burn hot against them. I'll take care of this, Moses. And matter of fact, here's the deal, Moses. Not only that, but when I wipe them all out, I'll start all over with you. And everybody will know that it's not just the people of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. This is what they'll say. The people of Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and Moses. Because I'll make you a brand new patriarch for Israel. That's right. Moses, let's just do that. Don't you think that's a better idea? Now, ladies and gentlemen, if Moses was not a humble man, if Moses was a man of pride or visions of grandeur, he might have said this to himself. Man, that sounds pretty good. My, my top billing for my name. And you know what? Those people are a pain in the neck. 
Let's just start over, God. And all Moses would have to do to have that happen was to do nothing. Moses was not a proud man, and he was not a man to do nothing in this critical situation. Look at what he does. Verse 11, it's so beautiful. Then Moses pleaded with the Lord as God and said, Lord, why does your wrath burn hot against your people whom you've brought out of the land? You love that, don't you? Moses I'm not taking them. They're yours. Lord, why does your wrath burn hot against your people whom you've brought out of the land of Egypt with great power and with a mighty hand? Why should the Egyptians speak and say he brought them out to harm them, to kill them in the mountains and to consume them from the face of the earth? Turn from your fierce wrath and relent from this harm to your people. Remember Abraham, Isaac and Israel, your servants to whom you swore your own self and said to them, I will multiply your descendants as the stars of heaven and all this land that I've spoken of, I will give to your descendants and they shall inherit it forever. Moses pleaded with the Lord. He refused to do nothing. He took the announcement of God's judgment as a call to action. There are some of you, I don't know if it's all of you, but there are some of you who believe that our nation deserves the judgment of God. There are some of you who believe that our nation, at the very least, is on a track that will lead it to a severe judgment of God. Can I say, if you believe so, it should call you to action and call you to say, I'm going to intercede, Lord. I'm going to stand in the gap. That's what Moses did. And he did so with a prayer that was not long, but it was strong. And this is how it was strong. Verse 11, he says, your people whom you brought out of the land of Egypt. The first thing he did is he told the Lord, no, these people belong to you. They don't belong to me. They're yours, Lord. And then he goes on in verse 11, whom you brought out of the land of Egypt. He appealed to God on the basis of grace. Lord, did they deserve to be brought out of the land of Egypt? No. The people have been so chronically against you all this time. Now, Lord, please, please, God, do your work in them out of grace, not out of what they deserve. So first, he said, they're your people, God. Secondly, he said, do the work because of grace. Now, in verse 12, he said, why should the Egyptians speak evil of you, God? No, God, preserve your glory, preserve your honor in this. God, I don't want the Egyptians to badmouth your name. To my view, Moses said, I think this would give you glory if you forgave your people, if you showed yourself as a merciful God. And then finally, he says there in verse 13, remember Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, your servants, to whom you swore by your own self. Finally, Moses appealed to the promise of God. Friends, that's powerful and that's beautiful. It's as if he held up God's own promise before him and said, Lord, here's your promise. Obey it. Answer to it. Here it is, God. Doesn't it seem a strange thing? We sang it this morning. We sang that line. Remember your people. Remember your promise, O God. Doesn't it seem strange that we would remind God of his promise as if he was forgetful? But that's not the idea at all, is it? We remind God of his promise because he loves it when we take his promises so seriously that we'll hold them up before God and say, Lord, please fulfill your promise. God delights in that. He loves it. He gets excited when you pray that way. When you plead his promise, you say, Lord, you said, you said, you said. And that's exactly what Moses did. And what was the result of it? Look at it here in verse 14. 
So the Lord relented from the harm which he said he would do to his people. God answered Moses' prayer. Moses prayed, oh Lord, please relent. And that's what God did. He didn't leave God alone. He labored in intercession. Now, the King James version of this phrase of Exodus 32, 14, not the new King James, that's the version I use, but the King James version translate this like this. The Lord repented of the evil which he thought to do to his people. And that uh, Elizabethan English phrasing of it has made people think, well, does God have to be sorry about something here? He repented? What's going on? No, no, no. God doesn't change his mind. He doesn't repent, not in the sense that we think about. It's helpful to read other translations of this passage. Uh, Look at these. The NIV says, so the Lord relented. The, The New American Standard says, so the Lord changed his mind about the harm which he said he would do to his people. The Amplified Bible says, the Lord turned from the evil which he thought to do. The Septuagint Bible says, the Lord was moved with compassion to save his people. You see, God looked at this and he said, no, because of Moses' intercession and because of the correction that I will bring upon the people, I will hold back my judgment. I will not do it even though they deserve it. Now, Numbers chapter 23, verse 19 says this. God is not a man that he should lie, nor son of man that he should repent. He said, and will he not do? So how do we reconcile this with what seems to be a change of mind on God's part? Well, ladies and gentlemen, I'd say two things. First of all, we understand that the Bible uses, and I know this isn't exactly the right term, but it's, it's close. The Bible uses anthropomorphic language. Anthropomorphic language is simply this. It ascribes human characteristics to something that's not human. Now, ladies and gentlemen, God is not human. He's divine. But yet, to understand God's actions, we'll speak about them after the manner of men. Do you know why? Because we don't have a divine vocabulary to speak after God's characteristics. There are some things that are so unique and so belonging to God alone, the only thing we can do is speak about them in near approximation with human language, with human terms. And so what did it look like to Moses? It looked like God changed his mind and relented and said, I'm going to judge the people. And now because you prayed, I'm not going to judge my people. Okay, Moses understands that. And so do we. But there's also a second principle at work that I need to bring up before you. The second principle is simply this. Every announcement of judgment is an invitation to intercession and repentance. That's what God does. Whenever God announces judgment, he's inviting people to pray and to repent. And sometimes because of that prayer and that repentance, God will relent. Now, that's not strange. That's what God wants to do. God wants to withhold his judgment. He's almost pleading with his people, give me a reason to withhold my judgment, either by your prayer or your repentance or ideally both. So the Lord did not destroy Israel. Look, there's a lot of this in the big theological picture that I don't quite understand. I don't know if I can fully explain to you how God's eternal, sovereign, providential plan, he knows everything that's going to happen, how it fits in with the free activity and choices and dealings of man. 
I don't know how they mesh. I just know that they do. And this is what I know. Moses' prayer was not play acting. It mattered. It made a difference. Life and death depended on the prayer of a man. And because he prayed, God relented. Let me wrap up with this. Let me, let me just draw back and say, help you to see yourself in application of this biblical passage. Ready? Number one, you, and when I say you, let, let, let me back off on that. We are like the people. We're so prone to make idols, are we not? And we need to be corrected. God, teach us to not make idols. Give us wisdom when something is even becoming an idol. Before it even becomes a full-fledged idol, give us wisdom. Hold us back, God. We need you. We are like the people. Secondly, we are sometimes like the golden calf. Some of you are the idol in somebody else's life, and you enjoy it too much to correct them on it. So don't allow that. Or how about this one? Thirdly, we are like Aaron. We see idolatry in the lives of people we love, and sometimes God calls us to make a stand against it and say, no, I'm going to act like a spiritual leader in this situation, and I'm not going to be a part of your idolatry. I'm not going to further it. No. And we should be like what Aaron should have been. So we're like the people. We're like the golden calf. We're like Aaron. How about this? We're like Moses. In that we should pray for people who are destined for judgment. And we should lift them up before the Lord. But then finally, we are like Israel. Destined for judgment ourselves. But Jesus Christ, enthroned in heaven, has made a sacrifice and has poured out atonement for us. And he ever lives to intercede for us. Not a single person here this morning who needs to be under the judgment of God because Jesus paid the price. Right now, as we take the last 20, 25 minutes of our service, we're going to remember that sacrifice that Jesus made for us. That which rescues us from judgment, just like Israel was rescued from judgment. The ground for God's mercy towards us. We're going to celebrate it right now as we come to the Lord's table. One of our elders, Mike Ryder, is going to come on up in just a moment and lead us in the taking of the bread and the cup. Let's prepare our hearts for it right now. Father, we thank you. And I pray, God, that you would deal with us regarding idolatry. We need it, Lord. We need to experience your zeal for us. That you're going to be zealous in denying us our idols. Instead, Lord, make us intercessors for those who see, who have your judgment on their horizon. Help us, Lord. Help us to receive it and to give it. We pray this in Jesus' name.